Today's reading is from Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you were to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you'll obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. King's Quest children, Grades one through four, you may find your teacher in the lobby and the rest of us may be seated. Well, good morning, Grace Long Beach. Thank you, thank you, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's fascinating to me. You guys are like some of the friendliest people I've ever met. It's always a struggle to get everyone like back to their seats when you're greeting one another. And then someone comes up here and they're like, good morning. And you're like, nope, not going to say it. Good morning, Grace Long Beach. Hey, there you are. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here with you guys this morning. Um, I, I don't know about your house, but we have survived a few weeks of back to school. Are you guys surviving? Yeah? So this is what I've learned so far. Um, my oldest son started junior high here at IVA, and we're loving it. Shout out to IVA. Uh, but what I've realized is in elementary school, when I would help with math homework, I could just look at it and know, like, okay, you're going to add, you're going to divide, like, this is easy stuff, but now I have to do the, like, hold on, dude, I need to Google, I don't remember what a factor is, uh, I need to remember how to, like, lowest common denominator, like, these sorts of things that are, like, just a step, just a step, a little bit more rigorous for me, uh, but it's, it's sparked all of these, like, memories and recollections of, like, junior high, you guys remember junior high, the awkwardness, right, the excitement, like I'm kind of grown up, but not really, but kind of on my way, and, and all of these things. And, and one of the things that's been really cool is 
uh, to watch my oldest especially get excited about some of the classes, right? Because elementary school, everyone does the same thing, right? You all do the same thing. But in junior high, you get to choose electives. You get to start to, to explore things that you may be interested in. And as I was thinking about this series that we're starting, the missional identity of God's people, the light bulb came on. Because I think a lot of times how the, the church in North America has thought about mission is it's an elective. If you like to travel and go to places where you like need a passport, then maybe mission is for you. If you're like one of those really extroverted people out there and you like to go and like tell people about Jesus, then maybe, maybe mission is for you. Maybe that's an elective you would like to choose. So for the next few weeks, I'm going to do my best to blow that up. I don't believe that that's fundamentally true about the identity of God's people or how scripture communicates about mission and God's people. We're going to make the argument that the missional identity of God's people is one of the foundational ways to understand who we are as God's people and what scripture is trying to do as we engage it. Does that make sense? So somebody way smarter than me, uh, a missiologist, somebody who studies and thinks about mission named Michael Goheen uh, has this quote where he talks about scripture and mission. He says this, he says, the Bible is a narrative, a story record of God's mission in and through his people for the sake of the world. The Bible's telling one story. The story is about God's mission in and through his people for the sake of the world, people who don't yet know Jesus. It tells a story in which mission is a central thread, God's mission, Israel's mission, Christ's mission, the Spirit's mission, the church's mission. And he ends by saying this, indeed, the whole Bible is itself a missional phenomenon. The whole Bible, the story, is forming us for mission. Hopefully those words are ringing some bells in your brain because a, few, a number of months ago now, Beth, Daniel, and I went away and we prayed and we asked God, like, what are we doing here? Like, what is your plan for us? What are you inviting us into? What kind of framework can we operate out of? And we came back with these, these concepts, the triangle, if you guys remember, um, of story, formation, and mission. So we had a series in the spring about the story, God's story. And then in the early summer, we spent some weeks talking about formation, how we're formed. And so we're going to spend the fall talking about mission, story formation and mission. And what Mike Goheen says is that the entire story, the entire biblical story is forming us for mission. God's story starts in the beginning with God speaking everything into existence. God creates uh, light and dark and separates the waters, creates space, creates the entire universe through his spoken word. He creates all things. And as he creates each thing, he says that it is good. And then at this pinnacle of creation, after he's created like beaches and mountains and animals and all of these things, he creates uh, Adam and Eve. He creates humanity. He creates people. And he says it's, it's very good. Humanity is very good. And he gives Adam and Eve this first commandment to go and enjoy any tree in the garden. 
except for the one. And just like you and just like me, what do they do? They go for the one, right? We always go for the thing that we know we're not supposed to do. And, and we see this in Adam and Eve. And if you guys can, were around in the spring, I, I did really, really sophisticated artwork with like a stick figure and arrows because that's the extent of my artistic capability. Uh, and we looked at how when Adam and Eve went against what God said, when they disobeyed God, when they engaged in sin, it, it distorted every relationship that they had. It distorted their relationship with God, right? They, they ran and they hid from God. It distorted the relationships they had with one another. There was blame shifting and guilt. It distorted their relationship with the physical creation. Now the work uh, would, be, would be plagued by thorns and thistles, right? Work would become difficult. There'd be pain in childbirth. These types of things, the physical creation was distorted. And even their relationship with their, themselves, as they felt shame, all of these relationships were, were distorted by sin. But even in that moment, as God is describing what, what will happen now that sin has entered his very good creation, there's a promise. There's a promise that one day things would be made right. That one day a descendant of Eve would come who would crush the snake's head. That this, that this curse would not reign forever. And we fast forward in Genesis chapter 3 all the way through chapter 11, and we see what sin does. It goes from bad to worse to crazy. And at this moment where we feel like, how can things, like what's going to happen? What is God going to do? What about this promise? We see God enter into a relationship with Abraham. And he makes a very simple covenant. He says, look, Abraham, you and your family, I will bless you so that all nations will be blessed. All families of earth will be blessed, depending on your translation. This is where we get the word ethnicity from. Every person on earth would be blessed through the blessing of this family. We see the start of God's mission unfolding through his people. Some theologians say we can break the Bible into two parts, Genesis uh, 1 through 11 and then 12 to the end, because the rest of this story is describing how God is making things right through his people, empowered by his spirit. And so Abraham's family grows and grows and grows, and there's a famine in the land, and they go to uh, Egypt, and, and Joseph is working for Pharaoh, and, and he creates a plan to help feed lots of people, not just the Egyptians, but other nations. And we're starting to see how this family, living into their identity, is blessing others. But time goes on and they, this family continues to grow into the millions and there's a new pharaoh who doesn't remember these people. And he gets really nervous because now there's a lot of people from somewhere else living inside his kingdom. So as we often do, he's scared of these other kinds of people who are really close to the, him. And so he forces them into slavery, into oppression, makes them uh, servants for the kingdom. And the people cry out and God hears them. And God sends them Moses to bring their deliverance. And if you guys have been around church for a while or if you've watched the Prince of Egypt movie, then you know the story, right? There's the plagues and, you know, the sea parts and this whole deal. And, and God saves his people. He, he delivers them out of Egypt. And he brings them on this journey into the wilderness to go to the, to the promised land, and he forms their identity there because for 400 years they were slaves. 
God needs to remind them of their identity. This is where we're going to camp out uh, today, but let me finish the story. God gives them a law to form their identity for the sake of those who don't yet know who God is. They are to live differently, not just because God is strict and likes rules, but because we don't often embody what God is like. That's what he's forming his people to do. God is holy, God is different, so his people are to act differently than the rest of the world, to show a contrast between how things are going and how things ought to be. And the rest of the Old Testament is the story of either Israel getting it right, God's people getting it right, living faithfully, living in a holy way that's obedient to God, worshiping and praising him with all of their being, so that the watching world can take notice and be invited into this family, or they get it wrong. And God says prophet, God sends prophets to them to remind them of what their identity is. Their identity is to live in such a way that displays what God is like. And so the prophets warn them, you remember, you remember what God said. This is to how you are to behave. This is how you are to treat one another. This is how you are to treat the poor, the widow, the orphan, the, the, the sojourner in your land. You are to respond to them in a different way that shows the welcoming, generous love of who God is. And then sometimes they repent and they come back and they start to get it right, but oftentimes that doesn't last for very long. Until finally, after generations and generations and generations and generations of God's patience with his people, he sends his people into captivity. They were supposed to live in the land for the sake of the watching world, and when they don't get that right, God removes them and puts them in the heart of Babylon, the people who do not know who God is, so that they can live differently, so that they can display what God is like. And after a period of time, God brings them back, and they think, okay, this is it. We're going to get it right this time. Spoiler alert, they don't, just like us. And then there's silence for years and decades and a few centuries. And then this promised one is born in the most obscure place in the heart of the known world to an unwed young teenage girl. This promised snake crusher is born. If you've been around church for a Christmas service, this is what we celebrate. Jesus, right? The Sunday school answer, Jesus. Jesus comes. And he embodies this kingdom. He embodies what God is like because he is fully God. He lives differently. And no one can make sense of him. He, he's way too liberal for the religious leaders and he's way too conservative for those who are outside the law. They cannot find a category to put Jesus in, but he lives differently. He embodies what God is like. He lives out this mission perfectly, bringing restoration wherever he goes displaying what the kingdom is like, what God is like. And so where there's sickness, he brings healing. Where there's brokenness, he brings restoration. Where there's oppression, he brings liberation. Where there's sin, he brings forgiveness and healing, and he calls his followers to do the same. And then Holy Week, Good Friday, Jesus is arrested and betrayed, betrayed then arrested, beaten, crucified, murdered, laid in the tomb, and if you were here on Easter Sunday or any Easter Sunday, you know resurrected back to life. 
proving the power of who he is. He, he is the promised Messiah. He is God in the flesh, sent to call his people, remind his people of their identity, but now it's bigger than just one nation. Now these walls are broken down so that Gentiles, those who are not ethnically Jewish, can be invited in. And before he ascends to the throne, he sends his spirit to make his people different, to give power for this mission that they are to embody, to remind what this coming kingdom is like, this is our identity. And you see it. You see it in the book of Acts. The early church is living this out. They're displaying love for one another and love for those who aren't yet in their community. They're displaying generosity. If anyone is going without, then those who have sell so that everyone has enough. Not forced, not mandated, not imposed, but because of the abundance of love that they are experiencing in this community because this is what the Father is like. This is what his kingdom is like, so this is what they embody. Paul goes out and starts telling people about this in all different kinds of places, so they have to figure out how does this good news or this gospel make sense here in Ephesus, in Philippi, in Corinth, in Long Beach in 2022. This is our story. This is what we're doing. How is this group of people here in Long Beach good news for the city of Long Beach in 2022, just like the early church was figuring this out in Jerusalem, in all of these cities that we read about? How do we display this good news? How do we display what this coming kingdom is like? And then God in his sovereignty gives us this book of Revelation where he gives us pictures of this kingdom where every tear is wiped away where there is no more sin, where God dwells with his people in a very real and tangible sense, where there's people from every tongue and tribe and nation because what Jesus promised actually came to bear, that the gospel did spread, that his people were faithful and went to the ends of the earth, living and proclaiming this good news. We get this picture of what the kingdom is like so we can be a preview people now. We can be the movie trailer that creates the buzz and excitement that people want to sign up for this thing. We can be the Costco sample, right? When you take the taste, you decide, now I wanna buy five gallons of it. We can be, like we talked about, the, the pink spoon people from Basket, we went to Baskin Robbins last night. Can I get a sample of Rocky Road so I know what it tastes like? Yes, that's it, that's the one I want. Two scoops, I'm all in. That's what we're to be, a foretaste of the coming kingdom so that when people are around us, in our community, in conversation with us, they sign up for the whole thing. They come into saving relationship with Jesus Christ because that's how God is reconciling all things. That's how God is undoing all of the brokenness that sin has unleashed. And that's ultimately where full, complete restoration will come. That's the story. That's the good news. And in a culture where we get a little nervous around authoritative stories that claim absolute truth, the gospel stands boldly and says, this is the reality. This is how everything started. This is what's wrong with the world. This is the answer, and this is where it's going. It's our job to communicate this 
not only through our language, but through our lives, through our relationships, through every aspect of life, Christ in all of life, every single thing. This is what we're invited into. This is how we make sense of the world around us. So I can't preach on Genesis through Revelation. We gotta land somewhere. So we're gonna land in Exodus 19. Exodus chapter 19. While you're flipping there, if you have the the Pew Bible from underneath your chair, it's on page 60. Um, And what's going on here is God has already brought his people out of Egypt. He's already rescued them and brought deliverance, right? And they're at Mount Sinai. And this is right before God is going to give his people the Ten Commandments. Now, if you didn't grow up in the church, at some point just in our culture, you've probably heard of the Ten Commandments, right? It's like kind of a famous thing. Used to be in the schools, and then now it's not, and you know, people get really upset about that. Um, But Ten Commandments, that feels like if you're just in the culture, you're at least vaguely familiar. Maybe you even have memorized one or two of them. God felt like this should take precedence over the Ten Commandments. God says this to his people before he gives them these commandments. What we're going to read, this is how God communicates with his people. Remember, forming their identity, who they really are, before God tells them how they should live. So he's forming his people's identity through this part of the story. Pick up with me, if you will, in Exodus chapter 19. We're gonna start in verse three. We're gonna read through verse six. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So we have three images here. Treasured possession, royal priests, holy nation. This is what we're going to unpack God starts by reminding his people that we are his treasured possession. Maybe you guys have played the icebreaker game, right? Like, if, it's very morbid, but like, if your house is on fire and the people are safe, like, what's the first thing you grab to save it? Like, oh, this is what you value the most, right? This is what God has in, maybe not this game exactly, but this is the image that God is communicating here to his, pe- to his people. What is most important? You are. That's like one of those things that's so easy to say and so easy to hear that it just like skims over us like like when you skip a stone across the lake. The God of the universe who is so powerful that he created everything by speaking it into existence. His most treasured possession is us, his people. What would God run into the flaming house to save? Us. This is where mission starts. 
This is, this is before there was obedience, right? There wasn't even a law to like hold people like, are you being obedient or not obedient? The, the law hasn't come yet. And he says, we are his treasured possession. Before you could do one thing right or wrong, God sees you and boldly declares that we are his treasured possession. This is where mission flows from. Because God says we are his treasured possession and not just dutiful employees. We're not people who work for God and we show up on time and we clock out when we're supposed to and we do above average work and so we get our reward. No, 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 no. That's not the relationship here. God looks at us and says, I love you because I love you. I love you. You are my treasured possession. My treasured possession. Not people who show up out of obligation. Not people who think, man, I really got to do this because I don't feel great about myself, but if I can just check this checkbox, maybe that next thing will really validate me enough. No. God loves you. That's what validates you. Ah, you know, I still sin, so I got I to gotta, like, make sure that I do all these extra things to like, counterbalance the scales of like, do I do enough or not do it? No, 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 no. Stop. We are his treasured possession. We are his treasured possession. Not like if you work overtime and if you go somewhere, like if, you, if you've told somebody about Jesus here, that's great, but if you go like to another country and tell them, then that's extra points. No. We are his treasured possession. We don't do this because we ought to. We don't do this because it's right. We don't do this because it's culturally relevant or irrelevant. We don't do this so that numbers in our church can grow. We don't do this because we need to earn our salvation. We don't do this for anything other than the reality that he loves us. And that's really good news. And when really good things happen to you, no one has to convince you to talk about it. My wife and I got away for this weekend. We got to go to San Diego. Nobody has to twist my arm for me to tell you how great it was to be in San Diego with my wife without kids. That, if you talk to me, it's just gonna flow out. When you go have a good meal, no one has to say like, oh, you better, you better tell someone. No, you talk about it. No young lady, when she gets proposed to, has to be convinced to post the picture of her finger with the ring on social media. It just happens. We talk about these things. It shapes who we are. And so when we root mission in this foundational idea that we are God's treasured possession, it's not a burden. It's a reality we're living out of. God loves us. That's good news. In a world that's so crazy, there is like a somewhat clear path. In a world that says you get to invent your own reality, that's a lot of work. That's heavy to carry. Jesus says, no, this is truth. This is real. This is what matters. There's freedom in that. We are his treasured possession, not dutiful employees. Passage goes on to say, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. Here's the reality. We don't live in a kingdom, and uh, if you're here, chances are you, you aren't uh, currently as familiar with priests. <laughs> So this language is a little different. Let's unpack it. It's a kingdom. It's a group of people 
whose vocation, whose job is to be priest, what does a priest do? A priest is a mediator between God and humanity. A priest mediates God's blessing to humanity. We are to be like a garden hose. From the good news, the blessing, the joy of who God is to the rest of the world. Not a fire hose, that would be painful, but a garden hose of blessing. There is to be like good news where we go. It, it shouldn't be when we walk in the room to like, ugh, let me pretend like I'm doing something on my phone. It should be the like, oh, blessing. Remember, it's good news. But sometimes we get this a little, a little tweaked in our minds and in our behaviors. Because it says we are to be a kingdom of priests, not grumpy judges. You know those people. I heard the giggles. Right? Like everything is like, oh, the doom and gloom of the world who's just out to get you. And like, is there a way that that's true? Yes. Yes. The enemy is, is active, prowling like a rolling, roaring lion, right? Like, that's true. And God is the one who judges. That's true, and I have not yet met one person who's been shamed into the kingdom of God because it's not a kingdom of shame. That's true, and I've not yet met one person who's been guilted into the kingdom of God because it's not a kingdom of guilt. It's a kingdom of there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's a kingdom of love. It's a kingdom of welcome. It's a kingdom of acceptance. It's a kingdom of forgiveness and mercy and grace. And if we are to display what the kingdom is like, but we're like salty all the time, that doesn't make sense. If we can't find one positive thing to say about anything, we need to ask ourselves, how good is this news? If our social media feed does not look like the fruit of the Spirit, we need to wrestle with some hard questions. This doesn't mean blind optimism. This means hope rooted in the gospel and informed by the story, the biblical story of what reality is. Yes, it's a broken world. And Jesus is reconciling all things. Like, he will fully reconcile all things, and we should wait eagerly for that. But already, when Paul wrote this a few thousand years ago, Jesus was already reconciling all things. If we have eyes to see, we can see how the Spirit is at work already in our culture, in the world. And if we can't find any hope, we need to adjust our lens. Maybe check our media sources. <laughs> Maybe spend more time informed by the word of God than by whatever you go to for your news source. Both sides, right? Both sides, let's be clear. So kingdom of priests, not exclusively grumpy judges. No one likes that. You don't like being, no one likes being around these people, right? but sometimes that's in us. We need to see that. Scripture doesn't end there. It goes on. You'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. A holy nation. Holy. 
if the image that pops into your mind is like Puritans, that's one aspect to think about it. Um, but what, what God is saying here is set aside for a particular purpose. I talked about this with a youth group, and I brought in, um, <laughs> we call it the scorpion hammer. Sounds super intimidating. It's a giant rubber mallet, a 32-ounce rubber mallet that I got in Home Depot in Arizona because we had in one of our houses like dozens and dozens and dozens of scorpions inside, outside, all over. And all we would use this mallet for is to go out with a black light and hunt scorpions. I know it sounds crazy, but if, you're, if you've spent time in Arizona, it makes sense. Um, because that's how you get rid of scorpions in Arizona. And so this thing was like nasty, right? Because it just has like years of smashed scorpion guts on it. Sorry, it's really gross. That hammer has a specific purpose. I don't hammer nails with it. I don't discipline my children with it. I don't do anything but kill scorpions with it. Now it's in retirement because we live in Long Beach. Thank God there's no scorpions here. There is one purpose for that hammer. To kill scorpions. It's set aside for a purpose. We are a holy nation set aside for a particular purpose. Not killing scorpions, but displaying what God and his kingdom are like to the watching world. That's the image that should be coming to mind. Set aside for a purpose. Our purpose is our missional identity. So why do, we, why do we sing praise and worship songs? Because we are communally declaring truth about who God is, the reality of this world, and how we make sense of it. Why do we pray? Because as much as science has figured out, there are still things we don't know the answers to, and that hopefully points us to who God is. They're not in conflict with each other. Why do we have faithfulness in our marriage? Because our marriage is a picture of what God is like and he is faithful to his people. Why do we think with discernment and creativity about how all of life, what we do, because everything is an opportunity to show the watching world what Jesus is like, what his kingdom is like. That's our purpose. That's the holy nation, not a literal nation. Not the United States or Guatemala or Zimbabwe or some physical nation here on earth, but the nation meaning God's people across time and space have been set aside for this purpose. It's not based on our ethnicity. It's not based on our citizenship. It's based on Jesus, what he has done and how we have responded to that. Set aside for one purpose, one purpose. We're a holy nation, church. We're not just friendly neighbors. Here's where we get to talk about St. Francis. There's this quote that's falsely attributed to St. Francis, Francis of Assisi, where, which says, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Okay, a few things. It's a great thought. Some people need to listen to this. St. Francis preached the gospel to animals. If this is our cop-out, like, I'm just, you know, I'm not using words. Like, my neighbor, we, when we get our trash cans at the same time, like, I smile. Great. That's not preaching the gospel. Is the kingdom of God friendly and welcoming? Yes, it is. Is that all there is to it? Absolutely not. 
It's great to be a nice person. You should be. Right? Like, kindness is important. It's fruit of the Spirit. That's not the whole of the story. If we're just out there doing good things without a verbal proclamation of why, we're great social workers. We're great community activists. That doesn't mean we're a church. That doesn't mean we're actually engaging in God's mission. Right? There has to be a connection there. Now, a little bit of church history. This is not grace specific. This is like in the West. There was a swing. There was a, a split um, in the early 1900s between the social gospel and the fundamentalists. The fundamentalists said it's really, really, really important what you say and what you think. Social gospel camp said, no, 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 it's what you do, how you love the poor, how you work for justice, how you serve the marginalized. And they turned it into this like either or, like which is most important. And then both camps have just gotten farther and farther and farther away. Here's the reality. We need all of it. We need all of it. We cannot just talk about this. It has to affect every aspect of our lives. We cannot just go out and do good things. Lots of people are doing good things better than we are. That's great, but we are called to not only embody, but to proclaim the gospel, right? Paul tells us in the New Testament, we should always be prepared to give an answer for when people are asking, why do we have this hope? This implies we're living such a way that people notice we have hope, that people are so intrigued and not put off by us that they want to ask us a question, and we're ready to talk about it. We're a holy nation. We're not just friendly neighbors. Now, don't hear that as being like unfriendly neighbors, right? That's not what we're called to either. But we're not just friendly neighbors. So what do we do with this? Well, hopefully we're encouraged because we are his treasured possession. Hopefully we're challenged because as broken as the world is, the spirit is still at work. And hopefully there's a little bit of motivation. Because yes, like ABCD, we're going to do the stuff. We're going to do the things. If we're only doing things and not talking about Jesus, we've missed it. Jesus is the culmination of this. Jesus is the message we're communicating. And as we transition in our service to, to the table, to, to communion, I think this is a perfect reminder of who we are. We are set apart after Jesus gave his disciples the, these images of bread and wine and after he was crucified, when he came back and talked to them, he sent them on mission, right? In Matthew, the great commission, go and make disciples of all nations. In John, as the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. We are sent with a purpose that should remind us that we are a holy nation. We're filled with the Spirit because of the work that Jesus did so that we can be this kingdom of priests. And if we question whether or not we are God's treasured possession, we need to look at the table to remember the body of the son that the father sent to be given for us. The blood of the son that the father sent to be shed for us. As we come to the table today, let's remember our identity we are a treasured possession. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. 
Is there personal benefit? Absolutely. For the sake of the world who doesn't yet know who Jesus is. So I'll pray, and then after that, our communion servers will come forward. Um, this, this table is open to anyone who follows Jesus. Uh, you don't have to be a member of the church here. Uh, we, we invite you to participate. This is a communal meal. Uh, if you do have younger kids here, the juice is in the purple cups and the wine is in the clear cups. And we'll invite you to come row by row. Uh, bring the elements back to your seat so that we can, we can enjoy communion together as a family, right? We wait till everyone sits at the table before we eat. We wait, we wait till everyone's ready. If you're in the balcony, you can make your way down and then uh, ushers will, will dismiss you by row. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for treasuring us. In a world that tells us we're not enough without the next thing, without the next title, without the next accomplishment, the next vacation, the next post that goes viral, the next whatever it is, you tell us that we are your treasured possession. You love us because you love us. Father, would you continue to press that down from our brains and into our hearts? Let us marinate in that reality that we are your treasured possession. Lord, that as you bless us, as we experience your goodness, our job is to share that with the world around us. Give us opportunities. Give us creativity in how we communicate this good news. Lord, remind us that it's not bad news. It's not just news. It's good news. Remind us of that. Create that excitement in us where you can't shut us up because we're so overwhelmed with who you are that we can't help but share it with people. Lord, we are your holy nation. Our brothers and sisters around the world, across the ages, share in this identity, this missional identity. We've been so in, caught up in your love that we can't help but live it out, live it out loud. And so... We ask that you would make us mindful of the ways your spirit is empowering us for mission. Lord, give us those uh, seeming coincidences where we bump into people, where there's an opportunity to speak, and give us courage and boldness to speak your truth. Sometimes it feels scary because of ways that it's been done poorly in the past. Lord, help us to get over it. Sometimes we're scared of people's response. Lord, you're in control. And sometimes we doubt ourselves. Speak to our doubts. Speak truth to our, the lies that we believe. Fill our ears with your truth, with your voice. We ask these things in your name, Jesus, so that your name would be made great in Long Beach as it is in heaven. Amen.